Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have a different kind of episode. I've invited a academic on to talk about some research he's done specifically in the reg tech field. So with me today, I have Associate Professor Ben Wong of the National University of Singapore. And with that, here's my interview with Associate Professor Wong. Ben, how are you doing? Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, good morning to you. Good evening to me. Uh, you are in Singapore. I am in Toronto. So, uh, short of a time, short of a time machine, we are we are on the opposite sides of the earth, of the sun right now. So, Ben, thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. As I said in the introduction, this is a little bit of a departure from the norm. In particular, uh, we got connected by um, through Jason Watt, who heard your research, a friend of mine, and he basically said that, "Hey, you've done some really interesting research on the reg tech sector." And we had a conversation. I thought hmm, this does make for an interesting conversation. Best we share it. So, uh, for the layperson, let's start off by defining what reg tech is. Yeah, so uh, reg tech, or short for regulatory technology, right? Our software. Um, that's designed specifically for the purpose of improving or assisting with compliance with rules and regulations. Um, So in the face of increasing uh, regulations in the financial services sector, it's become fairly difficult for humans to actually make sure they're in compliance. In particular, we have rules now that say something like, you always have to guarantee that you're in compliance. Um, And it's very hard for a human to be doing this 24-7-365. So they adopt software that helps to do monitoring. So a lot of this reg tech technology um, from the economic side looks like something that improves internal controls, right? improves monitoring, improves the information environment within a company. Excellent. And yeah, this is... To me, this is one of the underdeveloped yet most desperately <laughs> needed uh, sectors of finance. And frankly, uh, you know, depending on which side you're looking at, some of it's very developed, some of it's underdeveloped. But essentially, all it's there is to make sure that we are following the rules and to protect consumers and investors, right, and companies, right. We don't want, we don't need another 2000 anytime soon. Um, but the, this is a enormous data problem. Like, just the scale of it is mind-boggling. If we start talking about just number of cash transactions to be monitored for any money laundering alone. Like, I, I can't even fathom how many billions of transactions there must be a day worldwide. So this is not small. I mean, there is no human being who could actually take this all in. So software is the natural, natural answer. So, okay, talk to me. Now we have a defined reg tech. Talk to me about your area of research within reg tech and what you were, what you were looking at. Yeah, so we're, we're studying the... Uh, we have a paper that studies the implementation of a rule passed by the SEC called Rule 17A-5. Um, this was a rule that was first proposed uh, in the Dodd-Frank uh, reform, but la- but actually was uh, enacted and adopted slightly later on. Um, the goal of that uh, rule was actually very interesting. The statement of the rule is not so much that they're changing the rules, it's just that now the CEO or the managing director, someone someone who's an officer in the firm has to sign and attest that they are in compliance with other rules um, (laughs) always, right? And the statement is actually something along the lines of you have to ensure moment-to-moment compliance. Okay, so what does that mean? Many firms seem to have interpreted that as, oh my God, we always have to be in compliance and how do we guarantee that? And Jason, as you pointed out, this is a huge information problem. Many companies actually keep separate books, you know, in the sense that 
you have uh, some clients, some, some brokers, each broker may be managing their book. Those books may not all be consolidated together. So it's actually fairly hard to track all that's happening within a firm, especially if the firm is big. Um, so the rule that was passed, we interpret that as something that effectively mandates additional investments and spending on software solutions that actually help firms uh, comply with regulations. So the firms we're talking about are regulated broker-dealers, licensed broker-dealers in the, in the United States. Excellent. So, okay, so we're centering in on the investment industry. Uh, and this is a big challenge, right? Because, and I've said this before in this podcast, it's, there's no uniformity to, you know, anyone working through broker-dealer channels or whatnot. You know, you deal with one advisor, they have their view of the universe on how things should be in terms of how they manage investments. You deal with another advisor, and I can guarantee there's almost no overlap. Or if there is, it's very little. So you have all these independent parties, basically, who are making decisions as to how things are to work. And then every transaction, you know, first off, they have to be in compliance without transactions because we have to basically... Uh, have accounts that are in line with the client's goals, objectives, risk tolerances, all that sort of stuff. So it's not even a transaction there. It's a, it's a, com- it's a compliance issue. And then the second piece is that anytime a change is made, that has to be flagged as well. One funny story, though, before we go on, I remember when a Dodd-Frank came into, uh, came into effect and um, the, uh, was it Dodd-Frank or was it the one before that, where they, the, account, the, the CFO had to sign off on the financials and their accuracy post uh, all the dot-com stuff. And uh, was a major one of the big five accounting firms that CFO looked at him and said, "If it was your life on the line, would you sign these things?" <laughs> and he shrugged. <laughs> right? it, it is it is kind of funny. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about liability, and the only way to make companies really accountable is to make them liable. That's right. Yeah. So the implementation with this specific rule, you know, it's you have to put your neck on the chopping block in case something is wrong, and in addition, that increases the burdens on your auditors also. Okay. So all PCAOB uh, registered auditors actually also then have to attest for the firm's internal control. So it's like a double layer uh, liability mechanism. Um, so this actually came following large Ponzi schemes. And we'll talk a little bit about Ponzi schemes a little more today, given you know recent developments. Um, but this followed- we, are, we are having this conversation less than one hour after Sam Bagman fried was arrested. So <laughs> that's, that's right. And yep. uh, we'll get into more of the details, but the mechanics of what he did was exactly actually what this rule was designed to prevent, right? (laughs) And so actually the rule was adopted and started to be in effect effectively kind of second half of 2013. And this followed actually all the large Ponzi schemes. So you got Madoff, Allen Stanford, bankruptcies of large brokers like MF Global, where it was later revealed that, you know, surprise, surprise, they were using some client assets to support the firm's required capital or, or do other firm operating activities and so on. Um, so this rule came in and just says, look, you have to segregate your customers' assets. You have to make sure they're always segregated. That's the moment-to-moment component. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to always have your minimal capital so you don't just randomly disappear. Um, and your auditors have to attest to it. So it's kind of this wide-ranging, actually very vague rule on internal controls. And I think the... Only interpretation, as you said, is, okay, for all we know is, you know, the CEO or the MD has to put his neck on the chopping block. And so the reaction is actually fairly dramatic, what we saw in the data. Um, the rule actually only affected uh, carrying broker-dealers. So those are broker-dealers that have custody over clients' assets, right? So the main thing is actually about customer asset segregation. Um, brokers that were not 
carrying or using other brokers as custodians, that was fine because that's a third party, right? So it's very hard to steal customer assets when it's sitting with someone else. Yeah. So um, the entire RA market in the US is largely absolved of this because they work through one of a handful of big brokers, whereas the broker dealers, typically, it's all internal. Yes. That's right. And so, but but the universe is still split up into two types. So you'll call them uh, in America, introducing broker dealers or carrying broker dealers. And, you know, they can provide the same kind of uh, sales of financial products and so on. Right. But at the end of the day, the introducing guys do not have custody. They have to appoint someone else like HSBC uh, uh, to, to take custody over client assets. So this rule actually came in and just affected those who have custody. And so you know, they tend to be a little bigger, but when you look down the list of like the top 20 broker dealers, it's actually a mix of whether they're carrying or not. And uh, a lot of this business line of having custody, so it's actually a commodity business. It's very low margin, right? High overhead. Um, so a lot of how these companies came to be carrying broker dealers is actually mostly through like, I think, historical coincidence where they just kind of had merged with other holding companies, other financial services. And now this wow. business line kind of just falls in. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so basically uh, the chopping block thing, you know, it's amazing how when you have skin in the game, suddenly your 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 motivations change and you're more a little more concerned. Shocking how that works. Okay, so um, basically next go on the line, uh, they basically now have to deal with this. And again, the segregation, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. These are standard principles of banking and, and investing is quite honestly is that the client assets are sacred and they're, set, they're kept separate from everything else because otherwise it's a betrayal of, or misuse of their assets. So no surprise there, right? So, you know, this is, this is, and you're specifically focusing on the SEC rules in particular around the fact that, you know, we're talking about investing versus investing versus banking. I'd say there's, there's less transactional frequency than banking, but still a substantial amount. So, you know, realistically, companies looked at this, they must have thought immediately, like, we need a software solution. There's no other way to fix this. You know, what did you see in terms of the implementation? And, and then let's get into the efficacy of it. Yeah. So, yeah, as you mentioned, we study a basic question. How did this regulation affect adoption? And also then, what does the adoption do, right? How does the adoption actually affect the broker dealers in terms of their operations and the market structure of broker dealers? Um, And so pretty much what we saw was right when the rule was signed and started to be implemented, we saw this big jump in uh, technology investments. So we're talking about Companies which did not have things like Dropbox, Google Drive. Okay, I'm using layman's terms, but there are more proprietary software solutions for document handling and storage. That jumped about 30%. Okay, so most of the effect came from firms that did not have the software implementing these software. Okay, huh. so they start having data management software, is going to be the category I call it, and also enterprise resource uh, planning. So these are things like uh, capital budgeting tools. Right, tools that actually help you aggregate across different, uh, uh, maybe different offices. So you always have everything uh, centralized. Many of these software come together, right? So you get data management as well as some kind of enterprise resource planning at the same time. But that there's just a dramatic jump in the firms adopting the software solutions. So cloud storage and document handling, or at least cloud document handling, was was which makes sense because that's personal information. So you want to basically start doing something with that that protects it, other than just leaving it in files. Uh, and then the actual management of where these flows are going. I mean, like that's what you're talking about, essentially. The project management is the is effectively, you know, what is actually happening with this information, and or which is basically transactions, like what is actually happening here. So they took a kind of 
global view of it. So that that happened. Uh, any other key jumps that you saw either either as a secondary effect or uh, that happened in addition to that? Yeah. So the interesting thing was we see this big, you know, about 30, 40% jump in software. We see an almost equivalent jump in the number of computers, the IT budget that these companies had, right? Because, you know, we can have the best software, get SAP and all this stuff. But if my brokers and reps do not have, you know, devices to use them, you know, that defeats the purpose. So we saw an almost almost exact equivalent jump on the hardware side, right? So we're talking servers, computers, laptops, devices generally. So those can be cell phones. Mm -hmm. The estimated IT budget for each company increased by about 30 to 40%. And consequently, the profitability of these firms actually dropped by about, you know, five percentage points. So, you know, these investments seem to be costly. So five percentage points in fluctuation in your ROA, return on assets of the uh, of the broker dealer is actually a pretty big deal. So they do incur big costs from this regulatory requirement. Excellent. So cost was there. Um, you know, I, I also make the joke of a lot of these. I, you know, I'm sure some of that technology budget in terms of the spending on uh, on computers. I mean, it's a it's known it's a known um, it's a known phenomenon that computers tend to not get scrapped. They trickle down for a long period of time until they're useless. So I still remember way back when working in a large broker dealer in Canada, like the, you know, the trading floor had the top of the line stuff, then the, then the brokers. And then like you go to the back office and they were still working out monochromatic screens, right? Like, and it took them until, it took them until the early two thousands to get windows 95. So like, the they they will use a major financial institution will use every last bit of uh, of life of a, of a computer. So what I'm guessing happened there's a lot of that had to go away because if they were going to support the systems that they needed to actually enforce all this, they couldn't have certain levels of the company working off of 15 year old tech, right? Yep. Yeah. All right. A lot of it probably goes to replace the existing stock. Some of it probably gets to you know add devices, right? Again, yeah. all this stuff with the ERP, SAP, it's, is to help monitor, to help track. And also at the same time, uh, one interesting implication is actually firms then start to hire people who know how to use this stuff, right? So imagine you go to LinkedIn, you have want to hire someone uh, when they apply, right? They'll say, I know Microsoft Office, I know SAP, I know SaaS, whatever kind of uh, data management so we can actually track from job postings what has happened uh, after the rule is passed. And we see that as software spending goes up, they get more of these software, they get more devices. Now they start requiring more of their labor, right? More of the workers, the reps, the, 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 all, all the employees to actually uh, know how to use this stuff, right? So specifically, you got to understand what cloud storage is. Okay? You have to understand that you have internet, right? You need to have internet to actually access some of the documents. Um, and at the same time, the, the last kind of complementary thing we saw was as firms were adding in this data management software, they also seemed to increase investments in customer relation management software, huh. customer relationship management software. And many of these are slapped on top of the data management, right? So you can imagine something like, oh, the rule says I need Microsoft Excel, but I'll just go buy Microsoft Office. And that's going to come with PowerPoint and OneNote and so on, right? And so kind of these supplementary stuff through the bundling. So in this case, we think of things like Salesforce, HubSpot, right? There are little, yep. a couple more specific software providers um, that, that handle this, that handle customer communication. So document communication management, DocuSign type companies. 
CRM technologies that include, you know, emailing as well as, you know, pamphlet making, just basic kind of a marketing material type stuff where you can now have triggers, like a client loses 10%, you send them a new marketing uh, <laughs> piece or something. Please don't like leave that. us now. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. So, okay. A couple of interesting knock-on effects. There are questions. So given the, let's just refer to it as possibly increased talent of the labor pool, uh, was there a commensurate increase in labor costs as well? Yeah. So that's a little hard for us to, to figure out because I think uh, almost notoriously, the, the financial statements of broker-dealers is quite hard to get. Um, so for what we could get, we could actually only see the top line items, so things like revenues and mm. total costs, so we could back out profit. But I would assume, you know, it it must because the demand for this type of labor um, is going to outpace the supply, right? So I think basic economics suggests that the labor cost must have increased. What we actually did start seeing is that the companies with better tech started hiring more people, okay, and specifically not just more people overall from college they hired more people from their competitors, right? Hmm. So they're actually seeming to attract high quality broker dealers who are good at the relationship management. And then you pitch to them, look, we have this tech solution. So you never have to touch paper forms. You never have to go to the post office to mail anything ever again. It's going to be automated. And I think they like that. And so what we ended up seeing was these carrying broker dealers who, who seemed to be a little bigger on average, right? Then started getting better uh, cyber infrastructure, better data environments within the company. Then they added on these CRM type stuff that actually helps brokers with their work. And naturally, they attract more workers. So we actually saw bigger companies get slightly bigger. And a uh, concern we have is maybe it makes some of the smaller guys you know, less competitive. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, you know, whoever would have thought the novel idea of making people's lives easier would attract labor. Um, I mean, funny that way. Uh, the but that said, I mean, it's interesting because on the on the in the backdrop of this study, and what, what actually what period did you cover? How, like, what what point was your data cut off? Yeah, so we were looking 2010 to 2017. So the shock yeah. came in. The rule came in around 2014. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, I will contrast that and say, you know there was still a pretty substantial expansion in the RIA market in the U.S. over that period of time, uh, growing at double digits for, for pretty much the entire duration. So I can see that, you know, I, I, I will say that what I've seen in general is that a lot of the market, the software servicing that part of the market, um, they worked on a lot of base needs, a lot of the, they started building a lot of integrations between things. So what was being provided by the broker dealers naturally, because they were integrating their own stacks, the the free market in the U.S. basically started replacing through their own partnership deals, and to date, I mean, frankly, the most profitable you know per dollar of revenue firms that exist at this point are typically solo practitioners who are running at a high level of, of automation. So right. it's it's interesting. I think I think what we're you know it's the quote Michael Kitsis on 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 something here. Uh, there is a midpoint though when firms get to a certain size. Where the economies of scale are not going to pay off until they cross this big chasm, right? Like, so I think that I think your your observations are right in that it's on one side you have the huge broker dealers who have these economies of scale, and this is an advantage. On the other side, you have everything down to single practitioner to small teams who can still get plenty of economies of scale, but you have this chasm where when you're you're not big enough to get those economies, but you're also but you're also too big to basically have the cost savings of the small operation. Fascinating. 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, things like Zapier, automate.io, right? It's nice if you're a one-person shop, yep. you get a query, it automatically sends an intro email, right? So it's, it's nice if you're a small team or you're a single person, but once you start to hit 30 people, it's a little hard now because information is getting, you know, decentralized, right? And so yep. you actually want to start putting stuff together, economies of scale in terms of data, right? Or intangible capital, increasing returns to scale. You actually want to start consolidating it and then more people can use that information. So what we, we, we documented was actually, it seemed these firms would not have wanted to invest in all, all these technologies on their own. It's mm. the fact that there's some regulation that kind of forced them to get Microsoft Excel, right? And so you can look out and say, look, Microsoft Office is a hundred bucks or 300, I don't know. I get a free subscription through the university. So let's say it's 100. But if you get Excel by itself, it's 50, right? But if for 50 more dollars, you're going to get like a Word, right? PowerPoint, OneNote, OneDrive, all this stuff. So you'll say, look, rather than costing 100 to get everything, now the incremental cost to get everything is actually only 50 bucks because I have to get Excel anyways, right? And so firms say, look, since we're being forced to spend a million dollars overhauling our IT infrastructure, might as well use this as a catalyst to actually do more changes. Um, and the interesting thing is we do see improvements in their operations. So in spite of them getting bigger and maybe attracting more assets, the misconduct or the number or probability of customer complaints actually falls by about four percentage points. Okay, so this effect is actually equivalent to increasing regulation on them. All right, so this tech component seems to have, have the operational effect that's almost equivalent to like having the FBI come check the firm. So, um, so that's that the order of magnitude we're talking about. Okay, so now that that complaint me- the complaint issue is that a metric based off of uh, number of complaints, or is that based off of like the volume or the, the financial impact of complaints? So we're looking at the probability of a firm receiving one complaint at all. That's Got kind it. of our main measure because it's, it's it is fairly sparse. Okay, for most times, yeah. you know, there are no complaints, but we also look on the intensive margin. That is the number of complaints. We can look at dollar amounts. Dollar amounts falls by about, I believe, eight percent or so. So you know, you it's kind of it's kind of in there, and the the probability of large complaints also falls. So large complaints tend to be things like fraud, you know, misappropriation, churning, all these things, right? Unauthorized trading uh, that seems to fall. So the types of complaints that we see that decline the most are the types of complaints for which, if you had the financial transaction data. Right, you would actually detect it really easily. Okay, so you know this might be a nice segue into what has happened recently. Right, in spite of you know uh, the cryptocurrency market having stuff quote quote on chain, a lot of it ran off off the chain. Right, and so these transactions were not observed. Right, so in spite of the exchange FTX being bankrupt, you know Sam Bankman-Fried, the 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 CEO had borrowed a billion dollars from the company before it crashed, right? And now you have to trace where the billion dollars go, right? So 100 million went to his parents, right? They say, I'm just trying to help, you know, my family have a good life, right? And then some goes to a yacht, a mansion, whatever. But it's the fact that, you know, the information was so dispersed. And then you have kind of the other leaders of the firm say, we had no idea, right? So this is exactly what this rule was designed to, to, to push back against. Well, it's uh, <laughs> who would have thought a uh, move fast and break things industry and a uh, that was barely being regulated with money was was something we go wrong. Um, 
all my cynicism. Um, so you're absolutely right. Now it's, I'm going to go a couple of things to touch upon, you know, going back to your point on the reduction in, in, um, in complaints, you know, I, were you able, were you able to, or did you research any form of causation? Like, was it the eliminator elimination of bad actors? Or I mean, it, or is it like, we could just attribute this to a Hawthorne effect. If you're being watched, you're less likely to, to, to do the wrong thing. Right. Yeah, so it, when we look at the composition of the people working in these firms, yeah. we don't see any change. So I don't think it's like a purge of kind of people with a, some kind of disclosure history. Yeah. I think more likely it's the fact, you know, everything that, you know, every time you text your client, right, it's going to be through this software that's going to track your text. And so, you know, it, it's obviously not impossible to just, you know, take your client out for drinks and, you know, not log it, right? But it's a little harder, right? You kind of, you know, have to go through more efforts for wrongdoing. And most people do not want to do wrongdoing, right? And so if you just increase the cost a little bit, it kind of reduces the temp- net temptation, right, to, to do something uh, inappropriate. So that's what we think. So more to the latter explanation, I think. Yeah, I would think so. I think it's just, again, I'll, I'll attribute to Hawthorne to change your behavior because of observation, whether or not known or not. But it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's almost a linear relationship there. If we can, you know, if those, <laughs> I do really wonder, like if those complaints basically do result and we're valid in, uh, in, in settlement, then, you know, that at least points to some of the cost being offset by savings from, from, from basically complaint handling. So that's, uh, that's not a, you know, that's not an immaterial trade-off, quite honestly. And, you know, I will always come back to the fact that all finance, the entire financial industry is based in trust. Um, and, you know, anything we do that erodes trust eliminates, takes people out of the market. Anything we do that basically improves it, brings them into it. And, you know, this is a, this is a, you know, pie expanding exercise in my mind. But, you know, uh, the pie is shrinking in the crypto world right now. So, so uh, excellent, Ben. Thank you for talking for taking the time. I mean, any, any other insights within uh, this research you thought kind of stood out to you? Yeah. So I'll, I'll close with like we tried to do this thing you mentioned, like estimate the cost and benefits. Okay. So you know we can't quite estimate the cost of trust, right? I think you know most people believe it's huge because there's the big spill on effects, um, and you know one bad actor like FTX can make everyone lose trust in the entire crypto industry, right? And so there's a lot of negative spillover there. Um, but when we tried to estimate this for the broker dealers in traditional finance, you know we got savings in terms of alleged damages of about sixty thousand dollars. Okay, for the average uh, broker dealer, that's not big. Okay, the cost of implementing some of this software is between like one to ten million for larger firms. So you know it's an order of magnitude bigger. So it's not a reduction in the, in the direct. Uh, alleged if uh, damages that seems to make this worthwhile, right? And so you know you can add on additional benefits, right? In terms of the handling, the man hours spent, um, the uncertainty and the risk, and so on. But it still seems you know the cost of implementing some of these solutions are pretty high. And so I think our takeaway is maybe there is a room. You know, I think uh, in this case. Uh, you know, I'm betraying my trading as a Chicago PhD, but there seems to be large enough spillovers and that maybe there's some role for the government to come in and kind of mandate a requirement of a, here's what you need to do, right? At least follow the rules. I mean, if you think about it, this rule was just quite basic. I mean, I was astounded. I've never, never read a financial regulation like this. It just says, hey, all these other financial regulations, just can you comply with them always? You know, it seems basic, but I think uh, in the information age, it's got pretty interesting implications. And again, given what we've seen in crypto in the crypto world, 
I don't think regulation is going any way anytime soon, right? If anything, it's going to increase even more. For some actors in the crypto space, they'll welcome parts of the regulation, right? For some others, they will not. But we think this is kind of a necessary maturing of the entire market. So we'll see where this goes. But it's been certainly interesting to see, you know, cryptocurrency speedrun financial history from the past 250 years. And they're trying to do it in, what, two and a half years, three years. It's been pretty impressive in that sense. Well, I mean, I'll also say that at the end of the day, the pace of innovation keeps on growing exponentially. And, you know, the, there will be periods of fits and spurts where we catch up and, and fall back. But um, in the end, we're still, <laughs> I say that coyly because we're still using COBOL program servers. Anyway, and thank you so much for the time. I very much appreciate it. Where can people find your research? Yeah, so uh, they can go to my website, bencharenwong.info. Uh, if they Google my name, Ben Charenwong, I'm, you know, I'm sure Jason will have the spelling for you. There are not that many Ben Charnwongs around the world, so probably uh, the one you find is going to be me. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, it'll certainly keep keeping an eye on uh, what's going on in the industry. Well, there's always more material to write on in this, in this industry, that's for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was today's episode of the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, departure from normal, but it's uh, I think it was nice to take a step back and say, you know, what was the actual impact of regulatory changes and uh, and the implementation of technology? Um, you know, we don't often talk about the efficacy of regulation. I think this was kind of bringing together those those two things. So as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcast, iTunes, Stitcher. So please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.